0: COVID-19 has changed everything, halting life as we know it in its tracks. To respond to this global pandemic and to adapt to this new way of life, we're doing things a bit more DIY than usual. We're not in the studio and we're dispersed all over the country, but we did want to respond to the urgent need for information bringing to you the voices of some of the leading experts to help us grapple with the new and not so new dimensions of this crisis. It's in this vein that we're calling the series Under the Black Light to uncover the conditions that preexisted the virus and the cracks in our social structure that the virus can now exploit to wreak maximum havoc. In the coming weeks, we'll be producing live conversations that bring together artists, activists, thought leaders, scholars, service providers, and others on the front lines of the fight against COVID-19. Each Wednesday, we'll bring you a virtual conversation over Zoom, which will then be released as an episode of Intersectionality Matters in the following week. Over the past two weeks, the everyday conditions of black death have been as pronounced as ever, especially with new revelations in the respective cases of Ahmed Arbery and Breonna Taylor. And while the hunting and killing of Ahmed Arbery has become a well known tragedy, there are still many who've yet to hear the story of Breonna Taylor, a black woman who was killed when plainclothes policemen raided her home by mistake and shot her eight times. Taylor was a certified EMT who spent the last week of her life in high-risk service to others. It turned out that the risk that she could not survive was the one for which there was no protection. These two deaths, one in broad daylight at the hands of despicable vigilantes, The other, in the dead of night at the hyped up hands of cops, together represent that pre-COVID or post-COVID, we have been and remain subject to death by fiat. These deaths are modern embodiments of racial terror from a time we like to think is long ago when there were no rules, no laws, no expectations that white people were bound to respect against black life being taken. It's the randomness, the exaggerated return to days past that underwrites these killings as exceptionally intolerable. All the while, the slow motion death of so many other killers of black bodies continues to move through black communities as naturalized pathogens. So what do we make now of this devastating intersection between these different modalities marking how black people die? What exactly does it mean to reopen states when the racially disproportionate death toll is fully known and partly preventable with sheltering in place? And can it be merely incidental that along with the decision to unleash the not-so-invisible hand are the many systemic comorbidities of blackness that march alongside it? The first step to resisting power, of course, is to see it squarely and to learn from those in the front lines of battle how we fight back. We could think of no better place to shine the black light than Georgia. Georgia, sweet Georgia. The mecca of the civil rights struggle, where the eternal flame still burns, and the first black woman governor came to the brink of success. Georgia, where old school voter suppression still reigns, where its residents are deprived of Medicare, where its governor competes with our president in both his ignorance about the disease and his willingness to let people die from it. We focus on Georgia not to exceptionalize it, but to sit at the knee of those who can teach us COVID's playbook, the playbook that's unfolding in various degrees elsewhere. And we couldn't have assembled a better cross-section of teachers to help us do so. For this conversation, I was joined by Crystal Femster, professor of African-American studies, history and American studies at Yale University, and the acclaimed author of Southern Horrors, Women and the Politics of Rape and Lynching. Ano Changa, an electoral justice reporter for PRISM and the host of the podcast, The Way with Anoa. Emory Wright, a political organizer, movement leader, educator, and the co-director of Project South. To Letha LaFloria, an African and African-American studies professor at University of Virginia, and the author of Chained in Silence, Black Women and Convict Labor in the New South. And Latasha Brown, the award-winning organizer, philanthropic consultant, political strategist, and jazz singer who co-founded the Black Voters Matters Fund. I began the conversation by asking Crystal Femster what it is about the politics, psychology and performative dimensions of lynching that those who are shocked by its use today may not understand.
1: I think, you know, it was Keisha Lance Bottoms, the mayor of Atlanta, who was among the first to declare the murder of Ahmad Aubrey a lynching. And I think she was right. Uh, oftentimes we think of lynching as something that happened a long time ago. We have those um, historical markers, um, you know, from 1890 to, ni- um, to 1930 tends to be that mayor that we think about. But I think it was important for um, Mayor Bottoms to name this, to name it as a lynching and not just to reference it as a murder, particularly in a state that has a long history of mob violence, Georgia, right? A state where the first woman to serve in the U.S. Senate was Rebecca Latimer Felton, who declared in the 1890s, "Lynch a thousand black men a day, if necessary to protect the honor of white womanhood. When what she really meant was to protect the economic and political power of the white elite in Georgia. And so anybody who understands the history of lynching in this country, knows that it has had a profound impact on race relations, that it's shaped what we might think about as the geographical, political, social, and economic conditions of Black life. Uh, And it's still very evident today in our society Moreover we know that lynching reinforced a legacy of racial inequality that is just now beginning to be addressed in part due to the work of Brian Stevenson with the Equal Justice Initiative and he is constantly reminding us that lynching isn't just about the past and it's not just about these individual cases. That is so much a part of the public conversation right now. Um, we've had the passage of the Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act in Congress before the Senate right now. Just last week, Ida B. Wells was awarded posthumously the Pulitzer Prize Citation. Now, Aubrey's case reminds us of the ways in which the administration of criminal justice is entangled with the history of lynching in profound and important ways that continue to contaminate the integrity and the fairness of our justice system, right? Um, The ways that Black women and Black men are subjected not only to white supremacist violence, but the failure of the local authorities to act on their behalf or to, um, to actually be implicit and involved in that white supremacist violence. And moreover, it comes as no surprise that we're seeing what I see as the criminalization of Black mobility, whether that's running while Black, or we see the arrest of Black people in Brooklyn for not properly socially distancing, um, and the failure of the local, state, and federal governments um, really to act on behalf of the well being of Black folks during this pandemic as being linked to this longer history. History of mob violence and I don't think it's a coincidence that we're witnessing it in the state of Georgia. This Glen County, they're have at least been four lynchings that have taken place there alone. Um, More importantly, I think what we have to keep our eye on is, is that in Georgia, there's a long tradition of Black resistance and organizing around the political, social, and economic empowerment of Black people and their communities. And it's a state in which Black women right now particularly have been out front in demanding racial equality and challenging the disenfranchisement of Black people across the state. So I say that all to say that um, what happened in Glenn County and what happened to Amad Aubrey. It happened before COVID, but it is central to our understanding of what is happening on the ground in um, Georgia right now in this moment where they're wanting to open up the state. And I think we can't ignore uh, white fear uh, and white hysteria in a state where Black people are actually out front
0: demanding. Uh, thank you so much for for mentioning Ida B. Wells and my childhood friend Brian Stevenson. I want to come back to Ida B. In, in a moment, but I was interested in in your thoughts about the distinction that's typically drawn between private vigilante violence, which at least formally is denounced, and public police violence, which is rarely denounced, at least formally. And I'm wondering whether that divide really makes as much sense as people think it does. I mean, after all, one of the um, people charged with killing uh, Ahmad is a former cop. And the DA that effectively sort of authorized it used the language of typical uh, excuses that are given to cops who kill Black people. So is there something that this episode is making more legible about the relationship between private vigilante violence and the official authorization of the state?
1: When we look at so many cases of mob violence, what you see is a strong link between police brutality and mob violence, right? So that oftentimes in many of the cases, it's particularly the cases that I explored of Black women, or oftentimes Black women and Black families defending themselves against police brutality. And then a mob coming back, (laughs) um, basically, to say you can't resist police authority or police brutality. Oftentimes that mob, including police officers, right? So as much as we might want to make a clear distinction now between police brutality and mob violence, um, in the 19th century and early 20th century, those lines weren't clear. Um, And when you look at anti-lynching campaigns and the arguments that they made for anti-lynching laws and bills, oftentimes they linked it to um, police violence and they were able to make a case in some states that that counties had to be held responsible, particularly if a victim of lynching, lynching was taken from police custody because they understood that police officers were turning over victims or setting up cases where the mob could come into the jail with keys to take prisoners. Um, and um, and I, I don't, it's not surprising, I think, to any of us that one of the lynchers of Ahmad was a former police officer. We also know that, historically, the police departments across the South had white nationalist (laughs) Klansmen. So to, to try to disentangle that, I think, is a challenge. And I think we have to think about why we want to disentangle. What's at stake? What does it allow us not to see, right? That when we try to disentangle that, we see bad white People, we don't see a system and a structure that is in place that allows not only vigilantes to act a certain way, but it allows police officers to brutalize Black people on an everyday basis. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question.
0: Yes, yes, it does very much. Um, thank you so much for that, uh, Crystal. I want to move to Anoa and. Um, Ask you to, to pull this uh, into a wider uh, view of what is happening in Georgia. You know, sometimes people use the idea of the perfect storm, where uh, troubling dynamics that might have been survivable singularly come together, you know, to create a, a, a disaster. So, right now in Georgia, as elsewhere, there's electoral injustice. There's economic marginality. There's public violence. There's private violence. There's all that. And then there's COVID. Paint a picture for us, if you will, of what it looks like in the eye of the storm.
2: Really appreciate the question and being here with everyone. Um, just just thinking about all those things come together a lot of times we treat politics or electoral issues as if they're separate from all these other um, factors that are directly impacting our daily lives and what we're seeing right now with COVID-19 whether it's here in Georgia whether it's how we saw the elections unfold in Wisconsin and in Ohio um, we're seeing the, the way these these things all intersect and exposing these real serious fault lines across the board um, and really it's been a civic engagement lesson for the, the whole state and the nation as a whole and a lot of my coverage when I've been following up with different organizations and leaders it's been you know having to take a step back and ask people how they're even adjusting right now because you have many organizations like we have Emory here from Project South and later we'll talk with Latasha from Black Voters Matter but like all the civic engagement work all the organizing political work people are already doing on top of that they often also are responding to community in the midst of social health economic crisis right um and then we also are in the middle of an election season so we have seen the national conversation and locally we've had this conversation around vote by mail and expanding use of absentee ballots um we also have republican leaders whether they're here in the state like our state um legislative leader ralston or nationally fear-mongering and there is a long long history um of fear-mongering around voter fraud which then leads and supports voter suppression efforts right so this also builds onto the voter suppression tactics that we've already seen from Brian Kemp when he was Secretary of State going back to 2010, and we now, in the middle of COVID-19, in the middle of increasing you know, absentee ballot use, have his successor, Raffensperger, instituting this absentee ballot fraud task force. So even in the midst of pandemic, in the midst of all these things and systems that need attention, there is this focus on criminalization and actually fear-mongering in a way that undermines ability to access the ballot safely and without harm. We also have concerns about whether polling look early polling locations are going to be open. You know, Georgia is a place that has had 214 polling locations closed um, since the gutting of the VRA. We are number three after Texas and Arizona. Um, And then five of, The counties with the with the most percentage of political closures are rural counties here in Georgia. So you have this whole synergy in terms of how we exercise electoral power, and then on top of it, you have this other pandemic going on. We are a state that has not had Medicaid expansion, and the list goes on.
0: You mentioned the gutting of the VRA, and I just want to take a moment to note how the Supreme Court contributes to the conditions of disenfranchisement's possibility, Uh, along with the vote from a son of Georgia, Clarence Thomas. Let's not fail to mention that the gutting of the VRA was made possible by that. A particular vote, which allowed all of these changes that had the impact of suppressing the Black vote to go forward without any legal intervention. So while we're talking about vote suppression, I still think that uh, many folks from out the country don't really understand how old school some of this stuff is. So Stacey Abrams' campaign, um, who was on the cusp of being uh, the first Black woman elected governor. Kemp, who was then Secretary of State, purges, purges half a million people, um, holds up registration of 53,000 people, and beats Stacey Abrams by a mere 55,000 votes. And he got away with it. So is there a lesson here for the entire country?
2: I mean, absolutely. One of the things that we've all learned post-2018, and and anecdotally for individual work, people have known, but I think what we've really seen post-2018 is the need to have a multi-pronged strategy, right? We have the organizing. There are amazing organizations that do voter registration work and actively make sure that people are getting on the rolls. But here in Georgia, even though there's a requirement that you register 30 days before an election, there still is this weird dark period where the Secretary of State's office or the local county board of elections they, they kind of take their time putting people actually on the books. So you may have registered in time to vote for an election, but you may not actually show up, you know, on the books. So there are all these different barriers. I mean, we, we don't, ha- it's not the old days, right? Where we had, well, we might actually be back to the old days. Let me correct <laughs> myself. We just saw the recent, um, uh, a, a recent uh, consent decree that prohibited Republicans from doing ballot security measures. So back in the early eighties, there was a case where Republicans actually were recruiting people, uh, police, former police officers and others to actually patrol polling locations. And that consent decree has now expired. So we have you know, this polarizing election cycle. We have this massive fear mongering around voter fraud. And we do actually have organizations that are actively recruiting former paramilitary, uh, veterans, et cetera, conservative folks to actually be, you know, monitors in BIPOC communities, specifically saying, you know, you need to go watch these people because this is where voter fraud happens. So we are seeing a a cacophony of just all these different things coming together. And I think what we learn after Stacey's run, the necessity of having a real robust voter protection program, not on the back end to sue after elections have happened, but building that into the actual process. I think it vindicates a lot of the organizers who have been saying that, this is year-round civic engagement base building work we cannot wait until six weeks out before an election to start talking to you know communities of color georgia is on the verge of being um the first bipoc majority state in the um south Uh, i think it's by 2028 um this will no longer be a white majority state in the south there is um, this this fear, honestly, of that collective power. We saw a surge in AAPI and Latinx voters also coming out in 2018. So actually talking to a diverse coalition of folks can win, um, even in a state like Georgia. And they had to suppress the mess out of the vote just to get that outcome. And that litigation, even from Abrams's campaign, um, is, is still ongoing with Fair Fight.
0: Thank you so much, and particularly for focusing on the fact that so many of the remedies are not remedial because they come after the fact. And also highlighting that there is a method to this madness, right? It is uh, about forestalling a moment in which the political power configuration shifts. And uh, not surprisingly, that's a moment where we're likely to see, as we have, more repression, more suppression. I want to turn now uh, to Emory. Over the course of uh, Blacklight, we have anticipated and then we've discussed Um, the fact that African Americans are being disproportionately affected by COVID. But in Georgia, the numbers appear to be even more dramatic. So a recent CDC report noted that over 80% of COVID patients in hospitals there are African American. So can you describe to us what these numbers translate to for Black life in Georgia?
3: Definitely, definitely. And thank you, Dr. Crenshaw and, and the whole team of the African-American Policy Forum for making this discussion possible, my fellow esteemed panelists and, and everybody in the chat. I think it's just a huge uh, opportunity for us to come together and think through these very serious um, issues. And, and tonight, as it relates to Georgia, you know, we're living in a public health system um, that's not designed to ensure the public health. We're living in a country where the history of the transatlantic slave trade and the results of that history for us as black people has never been systematically dealt with. We're living in an economic system that rewards greed, exploitation, and extraction. We're living in a system where it's basically de facto civic apartheid, where we're effectively denied access to participate within civic life. So it's translating to uh, food scarcity for our communities. People were already, uh, poor and working people in our community were already having trouble accessing quality food, and um, that situation is now just worse. It's translating to a situation where we don't have access to basic information that we can use to protect ourselves in this moment of pandemic. And now with this lynching, it's just exposing these deep histories uh, that, like you said, are creating this perfect and and horrendous um, in its perfection storm that is really leading to ultimately needless suffering and death of black people throughout our our state. And and, um, it's an unacceptable situation and it's one that we are working hard to resolve
0: one of the things that I do think people really are grappling with is what to make of the fact that with African-American infection rates so alarmingly high, what do people think is behind Kemp specifically reopening businesses like barbershops, nail salons, uh, churches? What is the conversation about what that's about?
3: That's right. Well, you know, I think, I think in some ways, uh, Kemp is sort of a, a middle manager for the Trump regime. So um, it's, I think, part of this larger effort where we're really a test case for the rest of the country. And just like they're uh, testing bad medical solutions on our brothers and sisters in Africa, they're testing um, what it looks like to reopen the state on Black life, and the life of many oppressed people here in the state of Georgia. Nobody knows how this thing is gonna develop. And so um, if they can do live tests with us as humans and see what happens when we go out to um, the barbershop, what happens if we aren't socially distancing and, and think that this thing is over when it's not. So I, I think that, that experimentation piece is a factor. And I also think it's just a sort of callous rejection of life that this economic system that we're in uh, perpetuates they, you know, people are more committed to the rich keeping their wealth and, and continuing to remain wealthy than they are to most people surviving. And so if that means uh, opening up the state when the entire public health community is in unison saying that is not a good idea to do, it's just a callous disregard for life. And people who do Mm -hmm. not have access Mm -hmm. to information, don't have access to healthcare, uh, don't have access to just basic needs, um, which is our people, are going to suffer the most.
0: Thank you so much, Emery. So I want to turn to to Letha to get a sense um, about the deprivation of life-saving possibilities for incarcerated people, and even worse, the use of their labor to make PPE and other goods at bottom wages. So I couldn't help but think of this as modern day convict leasing. So from your research and what you've uncovered about what's happening now, would this be a huge stretch?
4: No, I don't think it's a stretch at all. Uh, In states all over this country, prisoners are forced to work in unsafe conditions, making gowns, masks, and hand sanitizer for pennies on the dollar. And these are all life saving commodities that they don't even have access to to protect themselves. And Georgia has a long history of exploiting prison labor. Uh, The state's practice of exploiting prison labor for profit um, has its origins in the convict lease system that you mentioned. And this was a system developed by the state in 1869, which involved the hiring out of state prisoners to private industries in exchange for a fee. So it was a practice that disproportionately affected black men and women. For example, in the mid uh, to late 1800s, and as we know even today, African-American men and women were subjected to significantly higher rates of incarceration and longer prison terms than whites. And this over-incarceration was a calculated attempt to um, strip newly freed black people of their liberty, but also to profit off of their labor. during the first 40 years after emancipation, Black women actually made up nearly 100% of Georgia's female prison population and its chain gang population. And so the practice of extracting and exploiting the labor of incarcerated people you know, has long roots. Uh, women like Maddie Crawford, for example, uh, were sentenced to work in a brick factory um, owned by the Chattahoochee Brick Company. Another woman, Ella Gamble, did her time in three prison factories and on a plantation And she did this work while running from a whip or the sexual predator on the other end of that whip. So, um, you know, it's my belief that Georgia is still under the influence of a white supremacist logic that promotes punishment over protection. And unfortunately, it's the same logic that has informed Governor Kemp's decision to reopen the state, uh, knowing that black Georgians are facing alarming rates of COVID infection and death. And so, as you mentioned before, the state is essentially experimenting with black lives in an effort to ensure the safety and protection of white lives and incarcerated lives don't seem to matter at all. When you ask, what do you see under the black light? What I see is carceral violence being meted out against vulnerable at-risk individuals whose stories and experiences have been hidden from public view. I see tens of thousands of incarcerated women and men who now find themselves suddenly sentenced to death in Georgia's jails, state penitentiaries, and federal prisons. I see Black women who are medically compromised, highly vulnerable, and neglected. I see people who are already sick and unable to receive a test, a mask, a bottle of hand sanitizer, an extra bar of soap. I see people struggling to social distance in an overcrowded cell block that holds over 100 individuals. And I see people who are being exploited by a corrupt criminal injustice system that continues to extract wealth from the labor of incarcerated people who are being forced to produce personal protective equipment that they can't even use.
0: So much there, Talitha. Thank you for that. And you have brought into the conversation um, some dimensions, I think, of carceral strategy that some people uh, may know somewhat about, but may not know it's reached into Black women's history. So when we're looking at the past and the present, that shape Black women's vulnerability to confinement and COVID. What do you think is missing from how most people see that vulnerability, if they see it at all? Yeah,
4: I think that's part of the problem. You know, Black women's vulnerability, fragility, and femininity, you know, has not been recognized um, by carceral systems and also, you know, even uh, by the policing, you know, the system of policing where, you know, Black women are being brutalized and roughed up and attacked, you know, and um, they're not seen as women or as women who are worthy of the protections afforded to white women. Um, So I see a lot of parallels between the past and present systems of mass incarceration, which I believe derived um, in the 19th century and not necessarily in the 20th century context um, that we link it to. I see a continuation in racial disparities um, even though the rate of incarceration uh, for white women is going up while seemingly the rate of incarceration for black women in prisons is going down. Black women are still disproportionately incarcerated. They make up 13% of the general population and yet they make up 30% of the prison population and 44% of the female jail population. So those disparities are still there. Sentencing disparities still persist. Black women are still routinely given longer sentences than white women. Um, Over-incarceration for petty crimes in the past, such as larceny, today translate into um, incarceration for nonviolent quote-unquote offenses, such as drug abuse, stemming from trauma. And so women's trauma is being uh, criminalized as they're using drugs to palliate their pain. They're being punished for that. I'm also seeing seeing violence shown to our Black female bodies, and again, an unwillingness to um, acknowledge Black women's vulnerability, and of course, the continuation of the exploitation of incarcerated women's labor. Um, And that is something that now transcends uh, race, but it did not in the past. And of course, I also see the continuation of the sexual abuse and domestic abuse to prison pipeline that has disproportionately affected um, Black women. So, um, these are the, some of the parallels that I see between the past and present
0: yes thank you so much for that and it reminds us of course that in our struggles against carceral strategies the gender dimensions of it are still not as robust as they need to be Uh, so one of our questions coming out of this is what do we need to do to make sure that that visibility about the particular ways that black women are experiencing um, punishment and surveillance and Uh, being caged, what do we need to do to make sure that that's part of our understanding? So thank you for bringing that and making it so visible to us. Um, I want to turn to Latasha, who uh, really made me sit up straight the other day when we were talking, and you told me about how the lessons from Georgia are what we need to learn about in terms of the entire country being under the good old boy uh, Southern rule. So for generations, you told us about um, how it's been the federal government that served as a check on racial power of the Southern aristocracy. But today, the federal government is in the hands of white nationalists. So the script is being rewritten for all of us. So the way you framed it was, welcome to the South. In some ways, echoing Malcolm X, who called everything South of Canada the South, so from Trump's White House to McConnell's uh, Senate to Barrs Justice Department, what are we all seeing now that is old news for you?
5: So you know I it is welcome to the South. I think now like in the in the words of of Malcolm X, anything below the Canadian line is the South and I think we're seeing it now and, and in a variety of ways I do want to say how the South got to be the way it is. That one, when we're looking at it, this historical racism, that is structural racism that has gone really mostly unchecked. I think about even the community where I'm from, I'm a native of Selma, Alabama, and I think about here is Selma, this, this famous place that gave so much to voting rights, but when you go, in that community, it's like a community that was abandoned, that they contributed so much to the advancement in voting rights, but yet this community, we did not see the economic rights and there's a, a community that is really struggling. This whole notion of American exceptionalism, there's something that I even refer to as Northern exceptionalism, right? That in some ways that racism just lives in the South, that's not so. What we do see in the South is that in the South, there has been structural racism. The fact that the majority of African Americans are in the South, that many of those systems have gone for more than 400 years not being disrupted. And in many ways, the South has been the center of white power in this country. And so you see a major uninvestment. When you look at the levels of investment, Um, from social justice, through philanthropy, to political money, it is pennies on the dollars than what you see in other places. And so what we've allowed is we've allowed the South just to be, oh, like, that's the South, but let's look who runs the country right now. There are Southern senators who are not just making decisions about Alabama and Tennessee and South Carolina, but they're running the Senate. They're running the country. And so ultimately, what we have to recognize is when we're not investing, and aligning with folks who are doing resistance work in the South, that it affects all of America. It doesn't matter how progressive you are in California or New York or Michigan. At the end of the day, if the South and the and and that becomes the center of white power that goes unchecked and that it goes without us really making the kind of investment to transform it, you will get what we have or what we're dealing with now. It wasn't by accident that Trump's first rally was in Mobile, Alabama. That wasn't by accident. And so That's one part of the story of the South that is really about the road to hell. But there's also another part of the story of the South that I want to lift up is about the road to hope. That at the end of the day, the South has something to say. We are also the site and the birthplace of major resistance in this country. And so I think that there's a lot when we're talking about how do we confront some of these systems, some of this structural racism, there are a lot of lessons that we can learn from people who've been doing this work nonstop in the South in terms of being able to work in conditions very, very under-resourced, under but yet been able to push back on these systems and make some incremental changes.
0: So one of the struggles that uh, we've been hearing a little bit about so far is the struggle over Uh, how this next election is gonna play out. So we saw in Wisconsin, for example, uh, that one party was willing to force black folks to choose between their lives or the franchise. And that is not a new choice. That is very much part of our history. Clearly that's a factor that is playing out in Georgia. So how are folks thinking about how to maneuver within these equally unpalatable choices, either vote or risk your life. What's on the agenda now for fighting against that?
5: That's a great question. I wish it was the matrix where we had the red pill or the blue pill. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) right. My favorite. Thank you. (laughs) It would be great, right? But we're not. We're literally in a reality that at the end of the day, I hate to say, like, it sounds so oversimplified, But it's organizing organized people have power. If you look at where there has been transformative change, not just in the South, in America, throughout the world, it came when organized people got together and resisted. Even the very foundation of this country was based on a group of folk who organized themselves and said that they were going to pay some taxes on some tea and literally start creating a different kind of revolution. My point is that part of what has to happen is organizing. And so what we have been doing is we've had to shift our organizing. We're known with Black Voters matter we're working in 11 states and so we're known from being on the ground and actually working in the field what we've had to do is really be able to adjust to what's in the moment right now what's in the moment before us is our people are dealing in the midst of a health pandemic and so we've got to prioritize folks don't want to hear about voting when right now i'm really worried about my health unless you're able to make the connection of how one is connected to the other and so what we've been doing is kind of threefold one we've been putting our work around doing COVID-19 and really being able to provide mutual aid and support to groups directly on the ground that are serving our community. Everything from providing PPE and masks to actually feeding, doing shopping for seniors and really organizing ourselves. The second thing we've been doing has been really around voter protection and election, which is why we're suing the state of Georgia right now. We have a lawsuit against the state of Georgia around the, the absentee ballots where they're not providing postage. We believe that that's a form of poll tax. Right now, our case is pending. And we're still fighting so for November that the state the, and which in the stimulus package, by the way, it includes money for elections. So why aren't you paying for the postage? Right. For people in their ballot. We know the answer to that. Right. A, that's a rhetorical question I'm asking right now. But the point because it fits in line with the history of racism in Georgia. But in addition to that, there's also this other bucket that when people are traumatized and our community is constantly traumatized, we need black joy and black love. And so in the midst of this, we've also been hosting concerts and literally having check-ins, using text messages to call folks and phone banks to call people and check in, be like, how are you doing? Are you okay? This is a resource list for you. Part of what has to happen is there has been this model around politics that I call the organizing round of the Negroes. That three weeks before the election, somebody drops some money and say, go round up all the Negroes and then have them to vote, right? One, it's not sustainable. Two, it makes sense to me why people don't participate in the process. Three, it's not transformative, it's transactional. For us, our work is really based on being transformative, which means the core of our work, there's nothing magical about canvassing. Right? If you if someone comes to your door and just hand you a flyer, and doesn't engage you, I know for me, I forget the flyer. I come and shut the door, go watch TV, and even forget that I even got the flyer, right? But it's different when someone comes to my door and actually engages in a conversation with me. One, the first thing we do is listen. It's to really be able to listen and see what people are saying and what they care about, and then work a relationship. So for us, even in our organizing strategy, we had to change the methodology, but our framework and our values were the same that ultimately we've built a organizing model based on relationship capital and building relationships with grassroots groups and grassroots leaders. And so now we've just had to add a layer of that, which hasn't been easy. I feel like I'm working double the time that I was working before and I was working a lot before, right? But really be able to use these digital tools to be able to communicate with our communities and with our people and really be creative. But ultimately it's really, the power is in the connection and in the relationships.
0: Thank you so much. And thank you for reminding us about Black joy and Black love in the middle of all of this. I want to also lift up one very important thing that I know some people are going to be like, well, how is a postage stamp a poll tax? Anything that gets in the way between your right to vote and your ability to exercise it that costs you money ought to be considered a poll tax, especially when to actually go out and get a stamp and you're supposed to be sheltering in place also puts you at risk. So I love the rhetorical question. I love rhetorical questions. I think they're politically important to ask. With all this money spent on the election, where's the money for the post stamp? So thank you for bringing that forward. So I want to um, come back uh, to Emory and hear from you about what the, the face of Uh, mutual aid looks like, what you are spearheading there that activists around the country really need to know about.
3: Thank you. Yes. Uh, We've been thinking about sort of social movement response to disaster, really a generation of us since 2005, when the Gulf Coast disaster began to unfold around hurricanes Katrina and Rita. And so some of my uh, movement collaborators in the Southern Movement Assembly, Far Waller-Mohamed, Gloria Kalanko, Suzanne Farr, I see are part of the call tonight. And we really came together back then to think through, how can we as social movements respond to disasters at a huge scale? And Katrina was a big lesson around that. A few years back, we had our Southern Movement Assembly number six in Chattanooga, hosted by Concerned Citizens for Justice there in Chattanooga and came up with this idea of uh, building mutual aid liberation centers throughout the region. And so uh, since that time, Project South with the Hunger Coalition and Carolyn Pittman have been working to develop a mutual aid liberation center at Nine Gammon, which is where our office and land is. So we developed it to be the community center that it's always been, but to also be a site that could be a place that we organize around social emergencies and disasters. And so when this pandemic started to unfold, we were able to really pivot quickly and not only uh, get out there in the community and offer food and, and hygiene supplies and public health information, face masks and making hand sanitizing Products, but we were also able to work with some partners and launch the first community-based movement run testing and education site in the state of Georgia. And so that's been running for about a week and a half now. We are having an outpouring; people from the community come to get tested and to get other information about how to keep themselves, their families, and their communities safe. And and so uh, that's that's one piece that is in this tradition, as has mentioned in the chat, whether it's the the Black Panther Party and uh, what they were able to do in Chicago and all over the country, or this history that's part of our Black radical traditions of the U.S. South around mutual aid. I mean, we've been coming together to build mutual aid networks by name and by principles since the end of the Civil War. We've had mutual aid societies around just being buried with dignity. Um, We've had mutual aid societies that are around um, pooling together our our limited resources for collective financial survival. And this mutual aid center is a multifaceted center, but it's it's really um, in part designed to respond to the types of disasters we now see ourselves in the midst of.
0: And and you know, uh, Emory, I, I want to uh, build off of what you said to to come back to something you mentioned about your uh, traveling uh, with Latasha to NOLA. Uh, Latasha, I, I don't know if you remember when Emory mentioned what what that story was. You know, um,
5: Emory, on our way down there, we were trying to move. I was on the like multiple phones, but really trying. We were trying to move food, and you know, something as simple as logistically moving water, i like, I had no idea how difficult it was. That literally one, having the access to pallets of water and then thinking through how to move it and to get it where it needs and, and to distribute it, particularly when there was a disaster. And so in many ways, you know, what what happened in that circumstance, I was forever changed. That, you know, in one way, you know, my, my goal was, okay, I'll help and then the real professionals will take over, right? And so I remember at, at some point I had a, um, a meeting with the Red Cross, which was horrible, that set the centers up on the white, and if people know that particularly in the south, the railroad tracks normally separate the black side of town and the white side of town. And for some reason, the, um, the, the centers, the rescue centers would be on the white side of town, right? And so, and at this point, there was no transportation, the roads were in many places weren't clear, cars that got flooded, there was no form of transportation. So instead of taking things to people, they expected folks to come over to the comfort of where they were to be able to get access. And so there were groups like Project South and ourselves and others that created what was called Saving Ourselves Coalition. And we had a coalition that in the end of the day, we were like, damn this, we gonna save ourselves. We ain't waiting on FEMA, we ain't waiting on the federal government. And at one point, Our operation was spread where we were working with 133 different communities all across the Gulf Coast region. At one point, FEMA was actually, there would be black folks that worked at FEMA that were calling us saying, hey, I got a family I'm going to send over there to you. That's what happens with mutual aid when we're connecting it. So there are many of us that are leading these efforts. My organization, Black Voters Matter, actually set up a $150,000 fund to fund mutual aid throughout the South. The 11 states that we work with and some of the groups that we're working with are actually doing direct, complete direct services. We're not waiting, you know, and we're not allowing our folks to be vulnerable, but we're doing a couple of things. One, we're providing the services that are needed right now, but we're also advocating and we're fighting. We're fighting. And then the third piece that I also think that we often got to think about is we're visioning. We've got to vision something different. We can't just be in a space of that we're just reacting. We also have to be in a space that we're building additional infrastructure. So all of our work is kind of like at the intersection of that, like as a Black futurist, like how do I respond to what is in the moment and how do I think as a visionary about really creating the kind of nation that I deserve, my community deserves, and the people in this
0: country deserve. All right. Um, I, I wanna bring Crystal back in and, um, as you mentioned that the amazing Ida B. Wells was just awarded the Pulitzer Prize for her investigative report on lynching. And, you know, I want to lift her up for a moment. In addition to your work, I also want to lift up Paula Giddings' biography of Ida, A Sword Among Lions. And I guess I want to ask, what's the consequence of how so much of her heroism has been lost to history? Uh, what's missing from the picture uh, of lynching that she was able uh, to paint for us, and what would it mean for us uh, to bring it forward, particularly now that our attention has returned again to Ahmed Arbery and Brianna Taylor? Um, first, Latasha,
1: when I listened to you talk, I thought that's, that's, this is our modern day Ida B. Wells. And um, because of what you laid out, I think. You know, I kept thinking about all of the things that Ida B. Wells had her hand in, right? That she was a radical journalist and she was an educator. She was a suffragist. She was, you know, the, what people, most people remember her. They remember her as like the godmother of the anti-lynching movement, right? Uh, but like you, she had her hands in a lot of pots. Right, and she operated at what you would call the intersections of her um, identities and her politics and her commitments within the black community. So, one of the things that I have really worked to make the case for around Wells is that she understood lynching as a platform to make larger arguments about the needs of the black community, right? And that for me, I wanted to see her as an anti-rape activist, right? That for her sort of inspiring the black club women's movement, which was in many ways a mutual aid um, operation, right? Um, But also um, she understood the political lay of the land. She was savvy, right? Uh, And she did suffer fools Lightly, unfortunately, so that made it sometimes difficult for her. But that she saw that to talk about the lynching of black men was not a zero-sum game, and I think that that's oftentimes the way that if we talk about police brutality, we feel like oh, we we have to focus on um, solely on black men, and in some ways, we understand that the numbers bear that need to have that conversation. But she saw those as openings, right? Openings to say, you know, we need to think about how the lynching of Black men is linked to the sexual exploitation and rape of Black women, right? We need to understand that the lynching of Black men is linked to terrorizing Black people and keeping them from the polls, right? That we want, we need to understand lynching as about um, deprivation. And at the same time that she was making demands on the federal and local, local government, she was doing that work of what I think we call a politics of care, you know, in the chat, somebody called it, um, you know, relational capital, <laughs> I think was the word. And I think that that, that um, Wells was really committed to that word. Uh, and then I think that that's oftentimes why she slips through the cracks, because on the one hand, we want to pigeonhole her in a very narrow way, um, but she ran for political office, right? <laughs> um, she lost, um, but she ran for political office. She was doing all of these things because she understood that there was a a magic bullet that we had to be fighting on all fronts.
0: And and let's not forget, of course, one of the reasons why we don't know about Ida B. Wells is because Ida B Wells was Ida uh, and not Ira, you know, basically not to uh, have had you know access to to leadership and, and to not to have had the full endorsement Uh, of Black male leaders at the time was a loss for all of us. And so I'm hoping that this moment is a corrective, not just to the national memory, but also to our own uh, political processes and aspirations. And so on that note, I wanna come back to uh, Anoa since we're were, talking again about understanding the, the facilitation of lynching. Uh, that is part of Ahmad's story. So one DA, you know, basically says that uh, Aubrey was a burglary suspect and and then another one has to recuse. It's a mess. Tell us just a a snapshot of how messy it is. We want to understand this in terms of what has been an effort across the country uh, to promote a politics of replacing these prosecutors. Is that a viable Thought uh, in in this case, in other places in Georgia.
2: I mean, I think that's a great question. I see it just came up in a chat, too, about if it, is there such a thing as a progressive DA? And we saw this play out across the uh, presidential election primary cycle right, with uh, Senator Kamala Harris. I mean, I think no matter where we are, this is still something someone who has to come from usually within the community for a certain period of time with a certain politic. And I think that takes, going back to Latasha's point, about a degree of organizing and building collective power. So I think that also takes um, actually nurturing and raising uh, a progressive lawyers who are willing to step into that role, then who also meet the qualifications to even try and run in the organizing aftermath around um, Ahmad's case. We are now on uh, DA number four in this case in about two and a half months. The first two DAs, as you noted, uh, recuse themselves. But what's really interesting, in a letter the attorney general um, actually sent, or a statement the attorney general actually put out on Sunday, uh, he has asked the DOJ to step in, um, not just to investigate whether they're hate crime charges or other things that the DOJ may be looking into, but specifically to look into the first two DAs, Jackie Johnson, who's a DA of the Brunswick uh, Judicial Circuit where Glenn County sits, and then you have the neighboring DA um, from the Waycross Judicial Circuit, uh, George Barnhill. Those two DAs, I mean, arguably conspired to keep McMichaels from being arrested. In this uh, document, the Attorney General indicates that Jackie Johnson and Barnhill kept from the AG's office in their multiple requests that Barnhill had actually been consulting on that case, uh, handling evidence, advising the police for four days before they submitted an official request actually to the attorney general's office. And it was at that time that Jackie Johnson had uh, suggested that Barnhill be appointed and they, they, they followed her suggestion but never once mentioned that she had already called him in and he had already been handling the case. What later comes out, which Also, they failed to disclose that his son was a prosecutor in Jackie's office. Not only that, but his son had previously prosecuted um, Ahmad in an earlier charge when he was in high school and that the elder McMichael had actually been the investigator on the charge. So at the same time that they are castigating and destroying this young man's uh, uh, reputation post-mortem, they are hiding all this information about their own um conflicts of interest and really protecting these individuals who i mean we talked about earlier what's the difference between you know police killing as we've seen now in kentucky and vigilante justice i mean when we have uh, uh, da's who have take an oath to uphold the law Um, regardless of their personal feelings or or, or relationships that are acting in such a way to misconstrue because we we saw uh, claiming, claims that they watched him, they were in pursuit of a burglar, like you said, using police language. I mean, this doesn't even fit in. Several lawyers have broken down the citizen's arrest statute here in Georgia, which, you know, legislation is going to be introduced by uh, Representative Renita Shannon and others to actually repeal that that law, but it doesn't even meet the basic requirements of the law. And there's case law on point that actually does not support the action taken by either Michael's, contrary to what Barnhill said in his justification, which he gave also orally the day after the murder happened as well as several days before he actually recused himself. And we would not have had either of these DEAs probably recusing themselves had it not been for the advocacy of Ahmad's family in the local community in Glenn County in Brunswick who were agitating. And Ahmad's mother just said she just learned that there was a connection that Barnhill had with the case and demanded that he recuse himself as well. So he was actually probably going to sit on that case and not even recuse himself like he should have been. So this also raises a lot of issues around prosecutorial accountability. I mean, there's a lot in this, but I think the organizing around DAs, but also sheriff's races, right? A lot of times in judicial elections, these are races that we tend to overlook. These are also races that it can be difficult to find people who have a particular lens in politics to actually run for these offices. But then we also have to build up the actual infrastructure or progressive machine, so to speak, to actually support these candidates. And that takes time. We saw what happened in St. Louis with um, Bob McCulloch. It took four years after um, the murder of Michael Brown to actually get him out and that was a successful example I think that we've seen um, with Wesley Bell now as St. Louis County Prosecutor
0: hmm so it's a, it's a longer-term strategy but it is a political strategy so I want to go to Talitha because um, we've been using terms that I would imagine some people might bristle at right we've been talking about the killing of Ahmad as lynching we've been talking about the killing of Brianna as an execution And we've been talking about the genocidal dimensions of going back to business knowing fully what its disproportionate impact on Black people will be. So I'm just wondering what you think about the work that's being done by those who want to limit the concepts of lynching and execution and genocide to only the precise contours of the past rather than bringing these concepts forward to think about these contemporary deaths?
4: Now, that's an excellent uh, question that you asked. I, as a historian, am able to see patterns and see connections between past and present. And while um, the method or the technologies uh, used to perform these, quote unquote, modern day lynchings may have changed, the intent is still there. And so I want to push back against those who um, seem to believe that lynching in the modern context is different or varies much from, you know, lynching in the past. Whether you use a rope, whether you use a gun, whatever apparatus that you use to take another person's life, you know, based on their race, based on their ethnicity, it's it's all the same. You know, the technologies have changed, but the intent has not changed. And the targets have not changed.
0: And, you know, we are in a moment, of course, where the decision to expend Black life for the economy is something that we've seen before, too, right? We've seen it actually as part of the economic wealth of American economic dominance. We also saw uh, black bodies being, you know, tossed over ships when uh, economically it made more sense to expend our lives uh, rather than save it. So, you know, these are patterns, as you point out. Um, So as we close, I think it would be inspirational for our listeners to hear what gets you up and pulls you through uh, this moment that is unlike a moment that many of us have seen in our lifetimes. I'll start with you, Emory.
3: Thank you for the question. Yeah, you know, what inspires me is, is really this vision that we're working on in terms of Project South and, and our partners in the Southern Movement Assembly, which is really a vision to remake our, our society for the liberation of all oppressed people. And the, our struggle towards that vision is, is what gets me up in the morning. And I believe that we are going to win. I believe that social movements can become um, sophisticated enough and organized enough to respond to disaster and reimagine civil society. And so... um, this pandemic is giving us an opportunity as a people to reimagine our world, and we need to, to take that opportunity. And Project South has also always been a believer in the power of youth. We, we run high school youth-oriented programming, and the courage and the vision of youth is also what always inspires me.
0: Thank you, Emery. Uh, Crystal, let me come to you. Um, Well, first of all, my people. Black
1: people. I'm inspired every day by our resilience, our courage, but it's also the work, whether it is on the ground, um, the work that Latasha and Emin and Anoy are doing, or whether it's the work that Talitha and Kimberly you are doing to kind of articulate and record a Black feminist praxis um, and to model that um, for the next generation. And I hope that we can all continue to learn from each other and be in conversation with each other, um, because I think that's the only way that we have a chance in making sure that Black lives matter, that our history matters, that our future matters, as you put it, Latasha. Uh, it's not just about survival in the moment, but it is about reimagining a world in which Black lives matter.
0: Thank you. Um, Anoa, what's to be done and what inspires you to
2: do it? Um. I'm inspired by the work of everyone here and what everything everyone just said and all the organizations and organizers and folks that I get to talk to in the coverage and reporting that I'm doing with PRISM. And recently I got a chance to talk with a brilliant author, uh, Mia Birdsong, about her upcoming book, How We Show Up, Reclaiming Family, Friendship, and Community. And it really caught me because she wrote it before the pandemic, but it's so vital and fits into the mutual aid conversation we've been having. And it's just really hopeful and inspiring with all these brilliant minds, reimagining what is possible Going forward and how we can all collectively show up together moving forward whether it's electorally socially in terms of health economics etc so
0: um, that's what inspires me thank you so much and Queen tell us miss Latasha what is to be done and what inspires you to do it we Shall not, we
5: shall not be moved. All right now. Shall not, we shall not be moved, just like the tree that's planted by the waters. We shall not be moved. You know, what inspires me is the spirit of my people. There were folks who did not have a vision to see us here today, yet here we stand. Right. I come from a people that didn't have government on their side, didn't have resources. But what they had is they had a spirit of resistance. They had a spirit to acknowledge their humanity. They had love for one another and also for the the toll of humanity. And as a result, here it is that I stand. And so what inspires me to do the work is that there are so many sisters, from the Fatty Lou Hamers to the Ida B. Wells to the Annie Coopers to, um, the Coretta Scott Kings, to to the Nina, um, Nina Simones of the world, that every day I am still drawing from the spirit and the strength of those sisters in their gifts. So because of that, because they are, I am here. And so I'm inspired um, by my people and the spirit of my people that continues to live in me. Come on now.
0: ooh! thank you. Thank you. Thank you. To all of the amazing, amazing panelists that you have heard uh, tonight Crystal Femster, Anoa Changa, Emery Wright, Talitha LaFloria, and Latasha Brown. Intersectionality Matters is produced by Julia Sharp Levine. This episode was edited by Julia Sharp Levine and Rafi Maharba. Additional support was provided by Emmett O'Malley, Michael Kramer, Awoye Tempo, Gregory Bernstein, and Alana Kane. I'm your host, Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters.
3: Louis Scarcella was the greatest homicide detective of his generation. I am the protector of these people. I am the guardian that they need. Derek Hamilton was the best jailhouse lawyer of his. And the law was my girlfriend. It was all I had. What happens when a group of convicted felons take on the cop who put them away? We gotta attack Scarcella. Come and get
1: me. Listen to new episodes of The Burden on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.